0: hey everybody thank you for tuning in to episode 212 of the virtual couch i am your host tony overbay a licensed marriage and family therapist certified mindful habit coach writer speaker husband father of four ultra marathon runner and creator of the path back An online pornography recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from the harmful effects of pornography. If you or anyone that you know is struggling to put pornography behind you once and for all, and trust me, it can be done in a strength-based Hold the Shame, Become the Person You Always Wanted to Be way, then please head over to pathbackrecovery.com and there you will find a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com and uh, head over to tonyoverbay.com. There is going to be a major site redesign coming anytime soon. I know these episodes are evergreens. Uh, The downloads kind of happen over the course of weeks or months and uh, there will be a, a big update, upgrade, that sort of thing coming soon and there will be a lot of information about an upcoming marriage course that uh, I am doing with uh, with another person. That is so funny. By the time that you hear this, then I will probably have already been promoting it on other podcasts, but I still feel like the cat's not out of the bag yet. So I might have to go back in later and then edit the name of the person that I'm working with because uh, we're very excited about the program that we're creating. It's how to create a a truly magnetic marriage with these really connected conversations. So, head over to TonyOverbay.com and you can sign up there to find out more about this program as soon as it it hits the streets. And uh, again, I really feel like we're we're creating something that is going to help people um, improve their marriages. And you can find me on Instagram at Virtual Couch or Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist on Facebook. And uh, let's get to today's episode. Although I have to admit, while I was talking in that intro and I give the whole path back recovery thing, I did have a pretty funny situation over the weekend where I was trying to do some updates on my website of just updating some podcast episodes over the last couple of weeks. And I could not get to my own website and then reaching out to my web host and finding out that because my I think they've maybe done some upgrades on their end and have some filters and blocks and that sort of thing. And my own website says the, the word pornography so much that I think it was flagged as perhaps a potentially pornographic website. So that's uh, I believe that is the definition of irony. So I'm not quite sure what to do with that. We're talking about that uh, as ways that I can update my website with my web host. So fun times ahead, I'm sure. So today I am going to I've already set a timer. We are uh, two minutes and 41 seconds into this episode. And I'm, I'm going to try to cut this off. I want to say around 30 minutes and make multiple parts multiple episodes because i'm finally getting to this gold that i have wanted to talk about for it's probably been over a year that i've referenced a book called the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk md and if you are familiar with this book you will know why i am very excited about it if you are one who just wants to head over to amazon and just look up the body keeps the score And you just want to read a lot of the reviews. I don't know if any of you do that or if you ever end up buying a book based on just the reviews. It's phenomenal. And it's a book that I listen to. It's a pretty lengthy book. But it was a game changer in both my practice and even just the way that I I just approach situations in general. Um, A lot of the things that I've learned about trauma and the brain and how the emotional brain kind of leads the way of the uh, logical brain and how the amygdala works to to put us in the state of fight or flight, and how that shuts down the logical part of our brain. All those things that really became clear to me came from this book, The Body Keeps the Score. And if you you think in terms of trauma, a lot of us think in just PTSD, and we think of someone that's been through a car crash or some one-time horrific accident. But he really lays out the course or the case for trauma in general, and how it affects our lives. So I, I have a big admission to admit is I have a 10 to 14 page document that are, they're called book club notes for the body keeps the score. And I have had them on a Google document, honestly, for years. And I don't, I don't remember how I came to these book club notes. So by the time I release this episode, I will, I will do my best to find the author of these book club notes, but I'm going to be referring to these book club notes a ton because they're so good and they're out there on the internet. They're free. And uh, I've, I've shared this Google document with a lot of my own clients because I feel like this is one of the most comprehensive reviews of the book that I've ever found. So I, if you want to know where these book club notes came from, then look at the show notes and hopefully I'll have a link to where I found them at the time that I released this episode. So so a lot of the comments, um, a ton of the comments I'll make come from these notes. So the, the person who did the review, and again, I feel so bad that I'm not referring to this person, so I will just say, um, according to the notes, or maybe I'll refer to the notes, and that is, thank you, person who compiled all of these notes. But uh, they talked about the real big takeaways from The Body Keeps the Score is, is that there are many types of trauma that a person either has gone through or more likely will experience during their life. And it can be everything from some of the things that we think about when we think about trauma again, childhood abuse or emotional neglect or an auto accident or war or terrorist attacks or the sudden death of a loved one. And in any of those would would re you know would be a definition of trauma. And while much of trauma is normal, although it is going to be uncomfortable, um trauma, it, it it produces a neurological response to this dangerous situation. And then once a person experiences trauma, then on a subconscious level, their brain, or or it begins to not only organize their worldview, and I love the way they put this, but it also creates actions around their response to these traumas in an attempt to keep them safe. And, and I feel like this is one of those game changer ideas in therapy of, and I say this often, you know, bless, bless my brain's, uh, little pink uh, squishy heart, that your brain really does mean well. So even when you think in terms of anxiety or, you know, a trauma response is your brain is doing its best to kind of look ahead and and protect you. And so a lot of the worries and the fears that we have, if you really analyze where they come from, they come from a place of trauma. So if you have experienced trauma as a child, if you've experienced trauma in your relationship, a lot of the work that I do in couples therapy of people who don't communicate well a lot of that comes from trauma in the relationship where they feel like they have put out emotional bids or they've been vulnerable or they've really opened up to their partner and it hasn't gone very well the responses have been you know in the form of oftentimes some sort of gaslighting response of i can't believe you just said that or do you know what that uh, how that affects me and so that that creates a trauma response and so we often then go into a relationship conversation and we're walking on eggshells or we're you know trying to avoid landmines or tiptoeing or all those kind of analogies and if you if you're in a relationship like that you know how exhausting that can be that here's a partner that my goal is to be able to go to them with my hopes and dreams and fears and anything but instead i have to okay is it a good time you know is is he in a good mood right now um you know or the last time i mentioned this then he didn't respond well but sometimes he does and so That that is a form of trauma as well, and so this can lead to a ton of problematic behaviors because what happens is often a lot of things like in the world of addiction, and or even tuning out to our phones, or binging on Netflix episodes, or turning to chocolate, or reading books, or that sort of thing can become a little bit of a of of numbing, you know, um, because. If, you're, if you know going into a conversation or a situation that it might not go well, then you may want to avoid that conversation. They call it experiential avoidance in the world of acceptance and commitment therapy, my favorite type of therapy. And experiential avoidance is kind of, you know, I'll deal with it later. I'll deal with it after the kids go to bed. I'll deal with it after the kids are out of the home. You know, I'll deal with it after he gets the raise. I'll deal with it after the promotion or you know, I'll deal with it after our vacation, or all of this experiential avoidance because we're afraid of how interactions might go, and then oftentimes, then that might lead people to feel a bit crazy, and so then they turn to things to help them numb out, um, or then that might leave them feeling kind of stuck, or you know, oftentimes trauma can also it can it can in one sense lead somebody feeling numb, but also it can leave someone in a state of being hyper aroused, such as feeling chronically anxious or on edge or then super hypervigilant about things they can control. People might kind of over uh, try to over control their kids or their schedules or their eating or their exercise or those sort of things because they feel like there are things in their life that they can't control. And so uh, a lot of the emotional and physical pain that's associated with trauma, um, we can overcome it. And this is done by understanding that what we're experiencing is primarily neurological. And that we aren't crazy, this is our body's response. Therefore, I'll go back to the name of the book often, the body keeps the score. And so once we can be aware of of our feelings and our actions, and then we can recognize that they're more of a defense mechanism, um, then things start to make a little bit more logical sense. And we can start to regain control of our brain or our body. And if you can get control of those things, you're on your way to controlling your life. So, um, the, the reviewer, uh, the, the person that re- has these notes said that the big gift in trauma is self-awareness, but it's a gift that we have to work hard at unwrapping. But, uh, but they say, boy, is it worth it? And, uh, they say, I really hope you enjoy the book as much as I did. My full notes are below. And, and I want to give an example. And this is one of the things I talk about in my office often is think about the way the brain works. And it's pretty amazing. It's it's a, it's pretty, it's a miracle if you think about it. Is that the because of our trauma responses, our emotional part of our brain reacts ahead of our logical part, and, and I'll give an example that's based in a little bit of reality here. Um, a while ago, I talked about opening a door, and ironically, it was on a Tuesday morning because it's a client that I have regularly on a Tuesday. And I open the door to my office, and uh, I say goodbye to the person. They leave, and I look down on the ground, and. And there's a little snake that's on the ground. And uh, then the other client comes walking around. And, and I, I'm the one that wanted to scream, but I tried to play really cool. And we ended up scooping the snake and taking it outside. But but then the example that it brought up to me that I give often is, let's just say that we open that door and there's a shoelace on the ground. Um, and I don't know how the shoelace would have got there. I never think through that part. But there's a shoelace on the ground. We would viscerally react. We would kind of like take a step back. And then we would realize, then our brain would say, oh, it's a shoelace. And so then we would kind of relax and just think about what a, a miraculous thing is happening there. Our emotional part of our brain, they call it your, your visceral or your gut reaction, the viscera, if you want to kind of go Google that. But that is is leading the way. It's working ahead of our logic. And think about, again, I keep using the word miracle because it truly is, is that our brain is conditioned to be able to give a slight pause, reaction. You know, it's if somebody's taking a swing at us, you know, we might uh, be able to step back from it before realizing, oh, my gosh, someone's taking a swing at me. Uh, admittedly, I haven't had a lot of people take a swing at me in my day, but the concept is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. So our, our emotional brain reacts and then logic comes in to fill in the gaps and say, oh, OK, it's a shoelace. I think we're going to be OK. And, and part of what I've learned from this book is that some of the more traumatic things that we go through, especially in childhood, may heighten that visceral reaction. So that's what can cause a lot of anxiety is that our brain is really looking as far out ahead as it can in effort to protect us. So a lot of times people find themselves in a bit of an anxious state and they're not even sure why. And I'll tell you why. It's because the body keeps the score, because the body is looking out ahead trying to protect you. And uh, I don't want to skip to the end here. But one of the things that I love talking about mindfulness or teaching mindfulness skills is so how what does one do to try to bring themselves back into the moment or bring themselves back to present is that when your emotional brain is leading the way, it is already raising your heart rate. It's kind of uh, putting you into this beginning of fight or flight mode. So the, the amygdala is starting to fire up. We're starting to produce some cortisol. And, that is, um, and that's raising our heart rate and kind of getting us ready for battle. I mean, if you think about it, that's what anxiety really is. Is it as your brain protecting you or trying to warn you about potential scenarios that may, may happen? You know, that could be a snake. Um, the person that you're meeting could be bad. Uh, you know, um, if you leave the house, things might go wrong. And so your, your emotional part of your brain is leading the way. And so from a mindfulness standpoint, a daily practice of sitting and, and having some time where you're, you're breathing, you're, you're breathing in through your nose, you're breathing out through your mouth. Um, again, you're not trying to clear your brain. You're trying to train your brain that when you are thinking about things, that you can come back to a present moment. You can come back to the breathing. You can come back to sounds. You can come back to smells or touch or or things that you can feel around you. And what you're doing when you're breathing or, or, or touching or smelling is you're not thinking. You're not thinking about the things that are frightening. So if you can kind of get yourself back into the present moment, you can often then lower that heart rate, which will stop the production of this stress hormone cortisol, which will then help your logical brain come back in and say, "Hey, we got it. We, we got we got it from here." So uh, I hope that part makes sense. So let me get to uh, the notes. So the 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 author says there are different types of trauma. So trauma can be an event, or it can be ongoing, and it can happen to people when they're kids. It can happen when they're adults. Um, and some examples are things like chronic emotional abuse and neglect can be just as devastating as physical abuse or sexual molestation. And I've got an episode on CPTSD, um, which is this, uh, it's this post-traumatic stress disorder and oftentimes found in relationships where people have, have gone through a long-term period of emotional abuse where they felt not heard, where they felt gaslighted. And that, that falls into this category of trauma because it does Begin to present you with a trauma response, so that when you are around your partner, your your heart is your heart rate raises and your fight or flight chemicals are already starting to lead the way, so to speak. So that is that is a a trauma response. So um, we all need to be seen and known, and not having anywhere to feel safe can be devastating at any age, but particularly when we're children. And uh, they go on to say that trauma in childhood, people might talk about their trauma in childhood, but odds are, and I, boy, I believe this one, we don't really fully realize the lasting effects of that trauma in childhood. Because if a, if a, if a kid grows up with parents that are traumatizing, and this is a big key, whether the parents are unintentionally or intentionally traumatizing, it does create a bit of an internal map for the way that children uh, see the world and how they function within this world. And so they either become a product of their environment or they tend to rebel against it. And so, so you have to think in terms of, you know, kids become attached to whoever functions as their primary caregiver. That's what we do. That's the attachment theory 101. So we all have a biological instinct to attach. I mean, we, we have no choice. I always say that we're not, you know, like a a rhinoceros that can go and uh, kill for food within an hour or so. We, we become attached to whoever that caregiver is. So if parents are, are or caregivers are loving and caring, or if they're distant or insensitive or rejecting or abusive, children will develop a coping style based on their attempt to get at least some of their needs met and and I think that this is a pretty fascinating thing if you have if you grew up with any emotional abuse or physical abuse or anything like that, and you have kids if you have if you have tried to do your 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 best and uh, and I know that that's we're all trying our best, but to now be the parent who's saying, hey, champ, you know, you can do anything. It is pretty phenomenal to see what a difference that can make. So when and I think about this often, when a kid grows up and they don't have that that emotional support at home, um, you know, I think of uh, they, they often then move forward and they're looking for, you know, do I matter? Do I care? You know, do you care about me? And they're looking for those signals from anyone that they may be around growing up. You know, it might be uh, people at school or teachers, or they might really unduly seek attention or that sort of thing, because they didn't have that modeled when they were young. They didn't necessarily have that attention or that support, or maybe feel like they mattered when they were young. And so then with, you know, with your own kids, if you have been that person, it's pretty fascinating to see them often just have confidence. And, uh, and I often talk about, you know, every kid is self-centered. That's what kids are. But the, the natural progression is for a kid to go from self-centered to self-confident, and a lot of that move from self-centered to self-confident happens when parents are there and are emotionally supportive, uh, physically supportive, financially supportive, because if that is not what's being modeled, then you often have that kid with more of an uh, insecurity or a lack of confidence because... They're just not quite sure where they sit or stand with their, with their parents or their, uh, their people who, who are in charge of them, in charge of their care. So caregivers don't just feed and comfort us. They, they then shape the way our, our rapidly growing brain perceives reality. And uh, in this article or this review, um, they say our interactions convey what and who is safe and what and who is dangerous. And so that information starts to form the template of how we think about ourselves and, and how we think about the world around us. But the nature of that attachment, whether it's secure attachment or insecure attachment, then makes this huge difference over the course of of a child's life. And secure attachment develops when the caregiving includes emotional attunement. So one of our primary needs is that we all, you know, we all must get our needs met. We, We need to know that we matter, especially when we're children. And children will go to almost any length to feel seen or connected or to feel significant. And this is what becomes again pretty fascinating when we talk a lot about how kids will seek attention, whether it's positive or negative. A lot of it comes from these these attachment styles when they're young. So so the book talks about four attachment styles between children and their caregivers, and uh, and these attachment styles often when we haven't really when we work through these these will stay with us through adulthood. So um meaning that people if they had an an avoidant attachment style as a kid, they most likely have an avoidant attachment style as an adult. And that doesn't mean now that they're set in stone. That means with this awareness, they can they can kind of start to work with that. So four types of attachment styles. One is secure attachment, and this is where a child gets upset and then they get comforted when their primary caregiver returns. So, you know, you can imagine that we're all kind of seeking this primary or this secure attachment. And I use that phrase often with with relationships when I'm doing couples therapy is that our goal is to find a secure attachment in couples therapy. Um, and again, I love this, uh, emotionally focused therapy model. And and I'll tell you the marriage program that I'm working on is clearly based in emotionally focused therapy, but it, it, you know, you want to know that your partner is there for you, that they care for you, that you can count on them, that they have your back. That is a secure attachment. So another type of attachment style um, that uh, that kids maybe uh, go through, or now we have as adults, is avoidant, and this one is pretty common. Avoidant attachment, so the child is passive and withdrawn. So an avoidant attachment, again, think of it in terms of the kid just basically is saying, "How can I be seen?" You know, I'll go to any, you know, children go to almost any length to feel seen and connected. So avoidant is, is in essence, if I become avoidant, if I withdraw. Then will you see me? Then will you care about me? You know, then do I matter? And we see that in couples relationships too. Oftentimes in the EFT model, there's a pursuer and a withdrawer. And so withdrawing is another way of saying, do I matter? Like I'm over here. Anybody care? Uh, Number three, the third type of attachment is anxious attachment. And in this one, it says the child screams or yells or clings or cries or draws attention to themselves. And so I think we all know those kids, they can feel uh, emotionally draining, but an anxious attachment is the child saying, I have to scream or yell or cling or cry or draw attention to myself to feel seen or to feel like I matter. And we often see that. And again, look at that in adults where in your relationship, oftentimes if if one person is the stoic quiet type, then the other person, if they have an anxious attachment style, then they may feel this need to really amp things up to be noticed or to be seen. And then the last type is this one that's not talked about as much, but it's a disorganized attachment. And it says the child is seeking closeness, but avoiding the parent, which puts them in a bit of a scramble as to to where there is no solution. And that disorganized attachment can be pretty, uh, pretty interesting to observe because it's like the kid wants to be uh, attached to their parent. But they also kind of don't necessarily trust parent or trust themselves. And so there's this constant kind of push and pull or, you know, I'm there, I'm not. And so that you can see that a disorganized attachment can, uh, can play into adulthood as well with somebody who is saying, okay, this is amazing, but now I don't trust it. And this is amazing, and now I don't know what to do with it. So attachment is the key, and that is knowing that we matter. So traumatized children are often oppositional and defiant uh, or, or hyperactive or numbed out. And so, you know, this uh, this um, reviewer says, was the different worldview of normal children what accounted for their resilience? And on a deeper level, how each child actually creates his or her map of the world? And is it possible to help the minds and brains of, of brutalized children to redraw their inner maps and incorporate a sense of trust and confidence in the future? That's part of what this book is trying to uh, to figure out or or it's kind of giving some solutions for that. So um, disassociation can happen. So disassociation manifests itself as somebody feeling lost or overwhelmed or abandoned or disconnected from the world and in seeing oneself as unloved or empty, helpless, trapped down or weighed down. And in the book, they talk about maternal disengagement and misattunement during those first two years of life can often be correlated with the disassociative symptoms in early adulthood. And uh, the person who did the review said, if you can't tolerate what you know or your feelings, the only option is a denial and a disassociation of those feelings. Because when you're young, you really don't even know what you're, um, what you're feeling or what you're dealing with. Hey, I promise I will make this very quick and we'll get right back to this episode about The Body Keeps the Score. But I'm just trying a little something different. I'm, uh, oh, let me start the stopwatch right now. Um, I do want to do a quick ad about betterhelp.com. Again, if you go to betterhelp.com slash virtualcouch, you can unlock the world of online therapy. Betterhelp.com has helped now. I think it's pushing a million people. Um, you can have a licensed professional counselor uh, contact. You can be in contact with them within 24 to 48 hours. And uh, they have a variety of specialties. Um, no doubt people there can help. If you are identifying with some trauma uh, in this episode that you want resolved, um I just want you to get help. So if you uh, if you don't feel comfortable going and waiting in a a waiting room, especially right now with the big shelter in place order, if it's easier for you to um, dip into the world of online therapy, go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, get 10 percent off your first month's treatment. And uh, if you don't like your therapist, you can you can you can get the new one and it's not very difficult to do. And uh, again, a lot, a lot of different specialties or licensed professional counselors. I'm at 56, 57 seconds. So I will wrap this up. Um, but betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. Uh, you, you deserve it. You deserve, uh, you know, they have a sliding scale if you need it. They have uh, scholarships, all that sort of thing. But uh, if you haven't given therapy a try and you don't necessarily feel comfortable going to a therapist in your area, um, give betterhelp.com a try, betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. Okay, let's get back to the show um, on the body keeps the score. Uh, They go on to say that childhood trauma often happens due to a parent's acting upon and out due to their own unresolved trauma. So here's where things get really kind of interesting. So children with disorganized attachment have no one to turn to, and they're often faced with this kind of unsolvable dilemma. Their their moms and their dads are maybe simultaneously necessary for survival, but they also become a source of fear. So not knowing who is safe or who they belong to um they may become intensely affectionate with strangers or they might trust nobody and this is what gets to be again it's it's fascinating and so there's no exact or you know medical model or exact science to this so but if a person has no internal sense of security then it can be really difficult to distinguish between safety and danger and so if a person feels chronically numbed out or potentially dangerous situations might make them feel alive um so you know they go on to say if you conclude that you must be a terrible person Then you start expecting people to treat you horribly And, and let that one sit in right when sometimes we we see people do continually destructive patterns. And if they have felt like they must be a terrible person because they didn't have that secure attachment when they were young, then they they almost expect people to treat them horribly. And if people are trying to treat them nice, then they think, okay, what's their angle, you know, or I don't deserve this. And uh, and so um, when disorganized uh, this disorganized attachment when disorganized people carry self perceptions like these, then they're somewhat set up to be traumatized by subsequent experiences. It's almost like they're they're kind of setting those uh, setting the table for those experiences to happen. Um, disorganized attachment shows up in two different ways. One group of mothers may seem to be too preoccupied with their own issues to attend to their infants, and in the studies that were pointed out in the book. They were often intrusive or hostile, and they alternated between rejecting their infants and then acting as if they expected them to respond to their needs. It's almost like if the parent was having a bad time, they wanted the, the infant to, uh, to comfort them. But then another group of mothers seemed helpless and fearful. They often came across as sweet or fragile, but they didn't know how to be the adult in the relationship, and they seemed, again, to want their children to comfort them. And they failed to greet their children after having been away, or they didn't pick them up when their children were distressed – and the mothers didn't seem to be doing these things deliberately. I think that's what's, what's you know, again, one of these keys is they simply didn't know how to be attuned to their kids and respond to their cues. And so thus they would fail to comfort and reassure them. And uh, And they point out that the hostile and intrusive mothers are more likely to have childhoods of physical abuse or witnessing domestic violence, while the withdrawn or dependent mothers were more likely to have had histories of sexual abuse or parental loss, but maybe not physical abuse. So again, you can see the the whole concept of the book, The Body Keeps the Score, that oftentimes the, the, um, the child is somewhat traumatized because the parent was dealing with their own attachment issues. So abuse between mothers and children then often happens when mothers become increasingly frustrated or defeated or helpless in their interactions. And then once the mother comes to see the child, not as her partner and in a tuned relationship, but as a frustrating or enraging disconnected stranger, then you can see that that stage is somewhat set for uh, – it can be some some you know, more subsequent abuse. And so researchers expected that hostile or intrusive behavior on the part of the mothers would be the most powerful predictor of mental instability in their adult children. But it was actually the opposite. This is what was, was wild. Emotional withdrawal had the most profound and long-lasting impact. So emotional distance and role reversal, um, known as parentification, were specifically linked to aggressive behavior against uh, oneself or others in young adults. So it was that emotional distance that kind of caused that uh, that that teenager or young adult to feel somewhat rebellious. So um, the next part that the book talks about is it says that children have no choice but to attach to their primary caregiver and, and learn ways to survive in their home life. So children have no choice of who their parents are, right? So um, nor can they understand that there are reasons that drive their parents damaging behavior, and that that has nothing to do with them. And this is some of the stuff that when, as a therapist, when you're trying to deal with an un, un, unresolved childhood trauma, a lot of times there is so much power in being able to process, um, man, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of this lately, uh, but you're going through a bit of a narrative of talking about, you know, what do you remember about your, your childhood uh, caregivers? And, uh, you know, and I'm saying, I'm always saying, hey, we're just looking for some data here. And you'll often find that uh, people remember times where they were, they were emotionally or, or, or even physically abused. And uh, but often it's almost like what follows is this just reflexive, you know, but I mean I was I was a pretty bad kid and and that's the part where you start to kind of unpack a lot of this baggage that's kind of carried through is, you know, hey, uh, no kid was bad enough that they deserved the physical abuse or or that emotional abuse. And so, you know, oftentimes that can start to feel a little bit liberating when that's processed because you know we we go through life kind of feeling like, well man, I was a pretty crummy kid, I, I drove my parents crazy. And it's uh, you know, and that's that's not that wasn't your role as a kid to make life uh, completely comfortable and easy for your parent. You were a kid. And so that's where some of this unresolved trauma happens. So so then, you know, children have no choice but to organize themselves to survive within the families that they have. So unlike adults, they don't have any other authority to turn to for help. And so their parents are the authorities. And so their very survival often hinges on their caregiver. So and, and children's sense, even if they're not threatened um, that, I don't know, that, that their beating or molestations or other abuse if reported would lead to punishment. And again, that's that part where, you know, oftentimes if you haven't had this in your family or experienced this, it's, it's easy to say, well, why didn't they tell somebody? But when you, you know, you, you can start to see how, when someone has kind of grown up with one of these, um, detachment styles that, uh, can be really challenging that that is not a safe place or a safe person to go to. So because they can't tolerate knowing what they've experienced, they also can't understand that their anger or terror or collapse has anything to do with that experience. So, um, uh, it, you know, instead of instead, they focus their energy on not thinking about what has happened and not feeling the, the you know, this the reviewer says the residues of terror or panic. So people then often turn to other things. So they don't talk or they they act and deal with their feelings by being enraged or shut down or compliant or defiant. And so children are also program to be fundamentally loyal to their caretakers, even if they're abused by them. So terror kind of increases this need for attachment. It's almost if they ta- attach more that they will somehow be able to stem that uh, negative behavior. So even if the source of comfort is also the source of terror. And so rage that has nowhere to go can often be redirected against the self in the form of depression or self-hatred or self-destructive actions. And so, and and again, I want you to know, I'm not going to get to this today um, because this is going to need to be a multiple part episode. Uh, Oh, I've already crossed the 30 minute mark. But in the end of this book, it does talk so much about ways to heal and ways to heal are through through things like talk therapy, uh, being able to process a lot of these type of things through movement. Yoga is a huge part of this. And uh, also I had an episode a while ago on EMDR which is a way to process things, to move things out of the amygdala or the emotional part of the brain into the prefrontal cortex, into the logical part of the brain. And maybe even from the things that I've talked about today, you can understand how that would be powerful because as if we're carrying these, this emotional baggage from our childhood, and now we logically can think through, okay, I'm not that person anymore. But again, the body keeps the score. These reactions kind of happen because They've been with us for so long. So EMDR is a is a method of therapy that helps move things from the, the emotional part of the brain, uh, the amygdala, over into this prefrontal cortex where you can process things more logically. And if you haven't listened to that, please go back and listen to an interview I did with Laura Abraham, an old high school classmate. She laid out what EMDR is and how it works just so beautifully. I've had a lot of emails from people that have now gone on and got their own treatment with uh, things like EMDR to help move with, uh, move past some of the trauma. So again, children program to be fundamentally loyal to their caretakers, even if they're abused by them. Oh, the last thing I said, okay. So there's a talk therapy, yoga, EMDR, and also mindfulness. Mindfulness becomes such a key thing because it is teaching you to, to turn to your breathing and to get present and to lower that, uh, that your heart rate so that you don't go into that, uh, that fight or flight response. and, and, a, and a, again, a daily practice of the mindfulness can uh, can be pretty amazing because your brain then starts to immediately go to this, hey, we're going to calm ourselves down, even at times when you're not aware of the fact that you are starting to get amped up. So you're literally training your brain to not stay ruminating or staying focused on the negative. So um, back there, so children, again, programmed to be fundamentally loyal to their caretakers, even if they are abused by them. And then terror increases that need for attachment. And so um, that can lead to these these negative or, or self-destructive actions. So I'm going to hit a couple of more things, then we'll kind of wrap things up. I'm going to go on a little bit of a here's, a, here's a lot of kind of just bullet points about trauma. So um, before I get to that, so our perceptions, this is pretty deep. Our perceptions create our inner map. So if we grow up with people telling us that we are loved and, and important and they treat us right, it will, and this is, This is what I was trying to refer to earlier. I know I didn't say it very well. But if we grow up with people telling us that we are loved and important and that they treat us right, it will feel uncomfortable if later we get into a relationship with somebody who's abusive. And I think as a parent, that's one of my biggest fears is that, you know, one of my kids will get into a relationship with someone who is abusive and they don't recognize it. And I've already had some just amazing conversations with my older kids about them being very aware of of how they were raised or the relationship that my wife and I have. And so that is is just one of the greatest things I feel like as a parent you can hear. Um, but if we grow up in a home where we were abused or ignored in childhood or grew up in a family where sexuality is treated with disgust, our inner map contains a different message, right? Our sense of self is then marked by contempt or humiliation. And we're more likely to think that an abusive person sees us for what we are and is treating us accordingly and that we will most likely fail to protest this mistreatment because it feels right. So, you know, if, if anything, I, I mean, I know this can be a heavy topic to talk about, but I almost I'm thinking in terms of wanting you to share this and, and listen with them and uh, go over the transcript that I'll provide to if you're if you're starting to work with your teenage kids or, or that sort of thing that you want them to be able to recognize that if they are being treated poorly that that is not, it's not okay. And if it feels okay, if they feel like they deserve it, or if they feel like, well, I was being kind of mean or rude, then uh, something that they really want to talk about, because that's not something that they deserve. Um, that, that isn't a relationship that they need to stay in. Uh, same, same with adults. This isn't something that we deserve, you know, to feel like, okay, well, I did, I didn't make them mad. So, I mean, that's, uh, I deserve their, their wrath or that sort of thing. That's the stuff that just, uh, again, breaks my heart. So um, trauma can be isolating like nobody understands. And uh, the reviewer said the part of our brain that's devoted to ensuring our survival, which is deep below our rational brain, is not very good at denial. So it might be reactivated even at the slightest hint of danger and secrete a large amount of stress hormones. And this precipitates unpleasant emotions, intense physical sensations and uh, an impulsive and aggressive actions, and then these reactions then tend to feel un- incomprehensible and overwhelming. And then, it, you know, feeling out of control, survivors often feel permanently damaged to the core. And my goodness, I hear that one often, where people just feel like they they just feel out of control, and they feel like I'll never get past these things, and and what's wrong with me and my reaction? You know, my the way that I I, I turn to the negative, and and I'll never have a relationship. And they immediately just pile on themselves with the negative thoughts and, and emotions and that feeling out of control then people often feel permanently damaged but it, it, you know this is where we get into the acceptance and commitment therapy thing the the thoughts are that we have plenty of them you know we, but we assign meaning to certain thoughts and not others and uh, learning how to recognize a thought is a thought and then learning how to recognize that an emotion is just something you're feeling in that moment and again you're going to have a whole lot of emotions that can can pass over you at any time so why are we given these particular thoughts and these particular emotions um, why are we giving them power? So uh, a traumatized person often realizes their perceptions are not rational, but then ironically, this makes them feel even more isolated. So, and I recognize this as a therapist often. So challenging a person's perceptions can make them feel worse, not better, uh, that it's important to validate how people feel as well as how, help them reconstruct their inner map of the world. So oftentimes feeling numb or many feel that they're living behind a glass wall, um, it may feel like they're floating in space, or lacking a sense of purpose or direction. And many survivors of trauma come up with their what they call a cover story, which is a story that offers up some explanation for their symptoms and behavior for public consumption. We're often at a loss for words after trauma, which can make somebody feel even that much more isolated. And and maybe I'll just throw a I'll end with this. I mean, the next one talks about trauma is confusing. Trauma involves flashbacks. Trauma can be upsetting. But but let me kind of end here because I, I know I'm I'm going a little longer than I had anticipated, but. Again, realizing their perceptions are not rational and often makes them feel more isolated. And this is where I feel like the work of a therapist is, uh, can really be necessary um, because oftentimes in the world of self-help – and I'm a self-help guy, so I'm, I realize I'm going to be a bit of a hypocrite here – But this is uh, one of those problems where when people just say, look, you need to take the bull by the horns, you know, you need to recognize that you are not your past, you need to move past this, you need to wake up every day and say, I'm going to, you know, be this new person, I'm going to do anything, I'm I'm doing big things. And I love every bit of that. Trust me, I do, even as I'm saying it, I'm like, uh, I'm sitting up straighter, my hands in a fist, I'm, I'm, I, I feel that. But what it can really be a challenge is that someone can get motivated to do that. But now, feel this right here. When someone grew up with trauma, then they say, man, I know, I know that those are what, that's what I need to do. I know that I need to just be happy. I know that I need to just choose every day that I am going to be happy today. So when I do that and it lasts for a little bit, but then it doesn't last all day, man, what's wrong with me? And again, whenever we get to the what's wrong with me story, that, that just breaks my heart because guess what? Nothing, nothing is wrong with you. You are a product of all of your private experiences, they say, in acceptance and commitment therapy, all of your nature and nurture and birth order and DNA and abandonment and rejection and 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 hopes and fears and loss and, and jobs and pandemics and everything. You, you are the only version of you that has, has gone through all of that. So you have the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions you have because you're human. You're not broken. You're human. And so, Telling someone then, then you just need to do this, or you just need to get over it, or work through it, or um, that—that's a great idea. But, but you can understand then why we feel such pushback to that, because truly, if we talk about empathy, no one knows exactly what you as an individual has gone through. And so, when somebody's shooting on you, you should just do this. We have this instant negative reaction. It's called psychological reactance. It's the instant negative reaction of basically being told what to do, even if being told what to do is go be awesome. You know, our, our brain's still going, yeah, but you don't really understand. You know, you don't you don't understand what it's like. And people in therapy often say to me, I, I just want you to tell me what to do. And uh, and some every now and again, I'll say, OK, all right, here we go. Uh, you need to do this. And they're like, well, I mean, I, I tried that, but that wouldn't work. It's oh, OK, no problem, because, again, we we're the only versions of us that have ever lived. And we're the only ones that know truly all of the desires of our heart and all of the fears and insecurities and all these attachment wounds that we have. And so the first place we have to start from is you're all right. You're not broken. You know, um, find out what really is important to you, uh, what what your values are, because you're going to have different values than than your spouse, than your kids, than your church, than your parents, than your community. And being able to find out what is really important to you is going to be so key to your healing because what's important to you is is because of what you've been through you are a product of all of these private experiences and so being able to find what truly matters to you is so key because and this is a huge takeaway because if you're doing something because you think you're supposed to or if you don't do it you're going to let somebody down um, they call those socially compliant goals and I think this resonates with so many people, your motivation is often going to feel weak and ineffective because it goes against what you feel is at your core, your sense of self. And so if you're doing a lot of this, man, I just, I should do this, or I just need to do this, or I know I I should do this, then take a step back and let's kind of take a look at why you're feeling the way you're feeling. It's because of all the things you've been through. And a lot of that, that's why I think I've almost hesitated getting to the this episode. And trust me, I've got about three or four more uh, episodes I need to do with just the notes that I have in front of me. But a lot of this is because of the trauma that we've been through. And, uh, and the, a lot of the trauma we've been through is, 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 you know, bless our parents hearts, they were trying their best, they were trying to deal with their own trauma. So we're all trying a little bit better, you know, we're all trying a little bit harder. And uh, we've all got a lot of things that we we have to deal with. So um, let's start with the, um, you not broken, you're human. And, uh, and that trauma is maybe what has caused you to have a lot of the responses or feelings or thoughts or emotions that you have. And, uh, and, and we're going to tackle that here in, uh, in future episodes. If you want to get ahead of the ball game though, um, go get the book, the body keeps the score, the audiobook's fantastic as well. And, uh, I think it, it really is a game changer on how that, uh, how you can start to work through this trauma and, and recognize that, uh, you know, you don't have to be, a a slave to the feelings of trauma but you can learn that that some of these things that we've been through in life are what impact or affect us and with that awareness and some tools then we can start to move forward so uh thanks for joining me here i think i probably went what about 10 minutes longer than i had 12 13 minutes longer than i would planned um i'm going to end with the the wonderful the talented uh, aurora florence with her her song it's wonderful because uh, life truly can be wonderful um, when we really start living by those values and things that we believe that uh, really speak to us and are true to us, and remember, you're not you broken. You're human, and uh, and we're gonna figure this all out. So have a wonderful week, and I'll see you next time on the virtual couch. Compressed emotions flying past our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grind—it's wonderful. Elastic waste and. Just.